Hey, my name is Zach. I'm the lead pastor here at Restore. Thanks so much for checking out this week's message. Uh, I hope that it's encouraging to you and inspiring to you. I hope that it causes you to dive deeper into the scriptures. And I hope that you're able to do that with some people around you, with some community. Um, but if you don't have that, we would love to invite you into the community here at Restore. If you want to take a next step, get more connected, you can just go to restoreaustin.org slash connect, fill out a card on there, and I will personally reach out to you in the days after you do that. And if you want to grab coffee with me or just get more information about the church, I will make myself available to you for that. As you will hear, we are in this thing called a year around the table, and it really comes from this vision that God's given us that Restore would be a place where anyone has a seat at the table and everyone experiences the extravagant love of Jesus. So A, I hope that you experience the extravagant love of Jesus as you check this message out. And B, if you don't have a table to sit at, we want to invite you to Jesus' table here at Restore. Have any of y'all ever seen the show Hoarders? Mm -hmm. Yeah, a lot of you. Um, that makes sense because uh, it's in its 13th season. Did you know that? It's, an, it's immensely popular. So it did six seasons on A&E, and it got, you know, like, it was awesome. Everybody loved it. But then it kind of tapered off at the end, and they just rebranded it. It was like Hoarders Overload, Hoarders Where Are They Now, like Hoarders Even More Hoarding. And it was just like all over the place, right? I mean, it was like Hoarders Infinity Game or what? what's that Marvel movie called? Anyway, so they just rebranded it over and over and over again. It's still in its 13th season. Now, if you don't know about Hoarders, it is exactly what it sounds like. Um, each episode focuses on one or two people who are hoarding various items, things like food, newspapers, clothes, dolls, even animals, like cats or birds or chickens. Um, and it's funny, I, I sometimes rib our kids and family pastor, Sonia, because they have a bunch of cats. Um, I think they have like four or five that they have, and then they have like three or four that they foster at any given time. But that's not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about like 300 cats, okay, <laughs> like that people hoard. It is, it is absolutely bonkers. Now, each hoarder in the show is paired with a team of specialists who help them clean up the, you know, place where they live and get the psychological help they need. The DSM actually classifies hoarding as its own mental health disorder. And if you've seen the show, like you probably understand why. Because hoarding isn't just about hoarding. It actually causes tremendous problems, both for the hoarder and for anyone caught in their wake. People on the show, you would see they would constantly be battling health issues, evictions, children being taken away, spouses filing for divorce, even physical injury, all directly connected to their hoarding. Now, we rightly look at someone who hoards 200 chickens in their apartment, and we think they have a problem, right? So here's my question. Why don't we look at people who hoard wealth the same way? Why don't we look at people who hoard wealth the same way? Why are hoarders of money often applauded while hoarders of newspapers are condemned? I think it's because we live in a culture where consumption and greed are not just tolerated, they are often celebrated. Just like we see on the show, the constant pressure to hoard and consume more and more and more is causing tremendous problems in our world. This culture of consumption is killing us. And if we do not choose to intentionally divest ourselves from this culture, if we do not choose to deliberately fight against 
a scarcity mindset, and the hoarding that often goes with it, we will never be free to experience the fullness of life that Jesus wants for us. And that's why two Sundays ago, after avoiding the topic for almost six years, we launched a series on wealth and possessions called Free from the Love of Money. Principles and practices to help set you free from consumerism, materialism, and greed. This series is designed to help us develop a generous spirit, both as individuals and collectively as a church family by looking at what Scripture teaches about wealth and possession. Now, so far in these two weeks, we've covered two core principles. Principle number one, it's not just money. The Bible talks about it all over the place. Jesus talks about it a ton. He even personifies money as a spiritual power that we're often tempted to place our trust in rather than God. He makes some really intense statements about money, like it's harder for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to get into the kingdom of heaven, like you can't serve both God and money, things like that. So it's not just money. It's bigger than that. It's more powerful than that. Principle number two, we don't own anything. This is what we talked about last week. Scripture is clear from beginning to end that God is the owner and creator and sustainer of all things, that anything that we have is on loan from him. We are stewards of it, managers of it. We are not owners of it. And we see that in one very practical way in that when we die, we leave it all behind, right? All of it is temporary. Anything we think we own, we're really just stewarding from God, and we cannot take it with us when we go. So those are the first two principles that we have covered. Now, we need to pause here and remind ourselves of a very important truth, and that is that Scripture does not teach that money is evil. Having money... A little bit or a lot of it isn't inherently bad or sinful. But what Scripture does teach in the more than 2,300 verses about wealth and possessions is that our posture toward money is vitally important. What we do with the wealth and possessions God has given us to steward is what matters most, whether we have a little or whether we have a lot. What we do with it is what matters. Are we hoarding them and using them for selfish gain? Or are we recognizing that everything we have belongs to God and we have a responsibility to use our money to honor him and support our neighbors? That's the question that every follower of Christ must answer. So now that we have those two foundational principles under our belt, it's time to tackle our first practice. And that is, only take what you need. Only take what you need. The Bible actually has a great story about this practice that would have made a perfect episode for hoarders. It's found in Luke chapter 12. Jesus told them a parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I will say to myself, self, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? Jesus says, this is how it will be with whoever stores up or hoards things for themselves but it's not rich toward God. That's how it's, that, how, that is how it is. That is how it will be 
for people who hoard wealth for themselves but are not rich toward God. Now, this guy, this reason why he would have made such a great hoarders episode is because he was such a hoarder, he tore down perfectly good barns and built bigger ones just so he could keep more and more of his stuff. Who would do something like that, right? That's nuts. Well, the rich fool may have invented building bigger barns to hold all of his stuff, but I would like to say that Americans, we have perfected that. Did you know there are more than 55,000 storage facilities in the United States? Just for comparison's sakes, there's 14,000 McDonald's. 14,000 McDonald's franchise, 55,000 storage unit facilities. The annual revenue of these storage units is about $40 billion annually. That's more than the GDP of 113 different countries around the world. About 78 square miles of our country is covered by storage unit. That's about three times the size of Manhattan. So make fun of the rich fool all you want. But we've taken hoarding to a whole new level. Just like the man in this story, many of us and our culture teaches, we believe that if we can just store up enough, we'll finally be satisfied. We'll finally be happy. If we can just get a little bit more, a little bit more. But it's never enough. No matter how much we get, this cycle of acquisition and consumption and acquisition and consumption never stops. And that's because hoarding is based on a concept called scarcity. Scarcity is a belief that we'll never have enough and we must do everything we can to get more and more and more. That the ends of getting more always justify the means of how we get more. Now, this scarcity mindset, which besets so much of our culture, it's toxic, and it's poisoning so many areas of our society. Rwandan author and community worker, Bongambiki Habyarimana, once wrote, hoarding can never end, for the heart of a man always covets for more. Its raging appetites can only be quenched by the heavy sands of the grave. That is a powerful quote. Like I said in the beginning, hoarding doesn't just hurt the hoarder. It hurts everyone caught in their wakes as well. Hoarding, the negative effects, the sin brought on by it, is multiplied. While hoarding may lead to earthly wealth for some, it leads to poverty and oppression for others. Because when someone gives in to the scarcity mindset, it always ends up leaving other people without their basic needs met. Back in the fall, if you were here, you probably remember, I told you a story of hoarding in which Haiti was forced to pay their former enslavers, the French, $21 billion to keep France from invading and killing them. France had enough. They had more than enough. But a scarcity mindset convinced them that they needed to hoard more, so they went and extorted the very same people they used to enslave. And Haiti is still feeling the effects today. Currently, Haiti is the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere and has a per capita annual income 100 times lower than France. Today, I want to share with you another hoarding story that I think hits a little bit closer to home. How many of you have heard of the Federal Housing Administration, or the FHA for short? Yeah, a few of us. It was established after the passage of something called the National Housing Act, of 1934. This act was a part of the New Deal under FDR. 
and it was passed during the Great Depression in order to make housing and home mortgages more affordable for Americans. Well, for some Americans, at least. In 1935, the FHA asked the Homeowners Loan Corporation, or HOLC, to survey 239 U.S. cities and create something called, quote, residential security maps, which would help predict where the federal loans would have the greatest return on investment. So if the government was going to put money into a community through this New Deal program, where were they going to have the best bet of getting the most back? But the HOLC, it didn't just predict It actually actively influenced the outcomes through a process called redlining. Now, how many of you have heard of redlining? I'm good. A lot of us. That's great. Redlining was a practice employed by the FHA which separated these 239 U.S. cities into four zones through a grading system. Green stood for best. Blue stood for still desirable. Yellow stood for definitely declining and red stood for hazardous. The vast majority of the neighborhoods receiving the declining and hazardous grades were made up of racial minorities, mostly black and Hispanic or Latino, while the communities receiving the still desirable or best grades were almost exclusively white. One of the 239 cities that got redlined was Austin, Texas. Richmond University in Virginia has compiled all the original residential security maps through a project called Mapping Inequality, and they turn them into this amazing interactive website. You can Google it and find it. It's, it's really incredible. But I brought a picture of the Austin map with me today. You can see it over there. That's the original map. It's a scan of the original red line map. And you can see the areas by grade. Look at the green areas if you're familiar with the city of Austin. Old West, Austin, Terrytown, Westlake Hills, Hyde Park, the historically wealthy and white communities. Now look at the red. The East Side and South Central, two historically black, Hispanic, and Latino communities in Austin. Now, it wasn't just that these federally redlined areas didn't get any funding. These maps actually became the FHA standards for giving out any kind of loans, not just home mortgages which means lenders couldn't get FHA insurance on their loans if they invested in redlined communities. For decades, this led to both public and private entities denying loans for individuals, businesses, and even nonprofits in black and Latino neighborhoods. Now, you might be thinking, now hold on, Zach. How do you know that redlining was about race? Maybe all those low grades given to communities of color is just a big coincidence. Well, the FHA appraisal manuals distributed during these times with all these maps came with specific instructions for banks to stay away from redlined areas because they were, quote, filled with inharmonious racial groups. That's government issued. From 1934 to 1962, a time when many white families, including my grandparents, were purchasing homes and building wealth. $120 billion of new housing was subsidized by the government. Do you know how much of it went to non-white Americans? Less than 2%. Less than 2%. This practice of denying loans to people 
based on their race, continued for decades and was not made illegal until 1974 by the Equal Credit Opportunity Act. Instead of looking out for folks suffering through the Great Depression and thinking, how can we uplift all Americans? The federal government thought, how can we help people who look like us and make sure we get the most money possible? So at the height of segregation and Jim Crow, an all-white federal government decided to only give money to white families and white communities, believing that would yield them the most money back. They told the banks and other lending organizations not to give loans for houses or businesses to people in communities of color. Now, again, you might be thinking, hold on, Zach. How do you know the people making the decisions at the federal level were white? Because we have history books. And the race and ethnicity of every cabinet member is listed in these history books. Did you know the first black cabinet member took office in 1966? And the first Latino cabinet member took office in 1988. 88, that's the year I was born. The Great Depression was horrific. Most historians and economic experts agree that the New Deal was vital for lifting us out of it. But who is us, is my question. Because although many Americans greatly benefited from the New Deal and our nationwide economic health indicators went up, racial minorities in our country were largely excluded from it. This action remains, these actions really, remain one of the most egregious examples of hoarding in our country's history, and we are still feeling the effects of it. This hoarding, based on race and class, has led to massive wealth gaps, which are still getting worse today. For instance, in 2016, due to the ongoing devaluation of property in historically redlined areas, predominantly white school districts received $23 billion more in state and local funding than predominantly non-white school districts. 2016, that's almost $2,000 more per student. That is directly saying this white student is worth $2,000 more a year than this student of color. Black, Hispanic, and Latino families have around 10% of the wealth that white families do, about $150,000 less on average. I could go on and on. But I'm just going to end with this one. The median wealth level for a white family with kids in the United States is 63,838. For a Hispanic and Latino family with kids, it's 3,175. For a black family with kids, it's $808. It's the median wealth level. I hope this goes without saying, but none of these statistics are caused by the inferiority of a race or ethnicity. Racial wealth gaps exist because of practices and policies of hoarding. That is why they exist. Everyone should care about this, y'all. But if you are a Christian, you should really, really, really care about this. Because our God, the one we claim to follow, hates hoarding. From the opening pages of Genesis to the end of Revelation and everywhere in between, God calls us to only take what we need and to give any extra we have to people who don't have enough. As they made their way to the promised land, God gave the Israelites enough manna for just one day at a time. 
And he told them, do not take more than what you need. And when some people tried to hoard it up, the next morning they found it eaten with maggots and, and, and gross stuff. God said, no, take what you need. The author of Proverbs 30 prayed, give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me just enough to satisfy my needs. When Jesus taught us to pray, he, asked, he told us to ask God to provide our daily bread, no more, no less. And then we saw he condemns hoarding in the story of the rich fool. In Hebrews, the early church is instructed to keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Now listen to this one. James, the brother of Jesus, speaks of hoarding with his trademark candor in chapter 5 of his New Testament book. Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming to you. Your wealth has rotted, and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, hear the cries of the field workers whom you have cheated of their pay. The cries of those who harvest your fields have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. God hates hoarding. You know why? Because when someone takes more than they need, others are left without enough. God hates hoarding because when someone takes more than they need, others are left with not enough. When one person hoards, another person goes without. Scripture speaks to this universal truth in Ecclesiastes. It says, don't be surprised if you see a poor person being oppressed by the powerful and if justice is being miscarried throughout the land. For every official is under orders from higher up and matters of justice get lost in the red tape and bureaucracy. Even the king milks the land for his own profit. Those who love money will never have enough. How meaningless to think that wealth brings true happiness. Scholars estimate that passage was written almost 2,500 years ago, and yet it is so tragically relevant to us today. That paragraph could have easily been written about redlining in America or, or France's exploitation of Haiti or a myriad of other greed-induced oppressive practices fueled by hoarding, fueled by a scarcity mindset. But scarcity is a lie. There is plenty to go around. If we will stop hoarding resources and start sharing with others, we will find that there is enough for everyone. You see, we've made the grave mistake of believing that the answer to scarcity is affluence. That the answer to scarcity is more and more and more, but it's not. The opposite of scarcity isn't affluence. The opposite of scarcity is enough. It's enough. By now, I hope that you're convinced of a few truths. That God hates hoarding. That hoarding hurts everyone, the hoarder and the people caught in its wake. And that we are called by God throughout the entirety of Scripture to only take what we need and to give any extra we have to people who don't have enough. I'm spelling this out in such kind of an elementary way because like we've been saying this whole series, we have to intentionally divest ourselves 
from this consumeristic society in which we live. And if we don't, it will end up making most of our decisions about wealth and possessions for us. Or to put it another way, if we don't actively choose to only take what we need, our natural consumption and this materialistic world will eat up every last resource God has given us to steward. If we do not make intentional choices about this, if we are just caught up in the rat race, these choices will just be made for us. And we will just perpetuate that cycle, that endless cycle of acquisition and consumption and acquisition and consumption. So how do we do this? How do we intentionally divest ourselves from this? Well, first, we have to be honest. We have to be honest about our propensity to hoard and consume. Because here's the thing, y'all. Hoarding isn't always extravagant or wasteful. This is going to piss some of you off, but (laughs) hoarding isn't always extravagant or wasteful. Sometimes we hoard under the guise of building security or investing in the future or being really good at saving money. Now listen, I'm, I'm all for saving money. I'm all for investing in the future. But there is a fine line between doing that in a healthy way and doing it like the rich fool. Believing that the security that you are storing up by your hoarding is going to lead you and your children and your children's children to happiness and contentment because you got enough money to give them. That is not where hope and happiness are found. So we must sincerely answer this question. Do I have more than I need? Do I have more than I need? For most of us, the answer is yes. Most of us have extra. When I'm talking about this with people, one of my favorite things to do is give them a little extra test. So we're going to do that together right now. You have extra if you've ever looked at a drawer or a closet full of clothes and thought, I have nothing to wear. You have extra. If you've paid for entertainment in the last year, Netflix, concerts, movies, etc., you have extra. If we have ever upgraded, by that I mean taken something that works, a phone, a car, an apartment, a television, and upgraded to something else that works, you have extra. If you've ever spent more than $2 on a cup of coffee, you have extra. This is a good one. If you've ever gotten an Amazon package that you ordered and you don't know what's in it because you just order stuff all the time, you're like, oh, a present. Oh, I ordered this two days ago. Yeah. You have extra. I have extra. We have extra. Most of us have extra. Now, listen, the point is not how much extra. It's what we do with the extra we have. We assume that our extra is for us to hoard and consume. That's what the world tells us. There's something even in a lot of us that tells us that same thing. Now, we don't like those words, right? We like to say it's ours to spend and to save because they make us feel better about it. But what we're really talking about is that our extra is for us to hoard and consume. But listen, what would happen if we began to see our extra as an opportunity to help those who don't have enough? What if we saw our extra as something given to us by God to give to others? Everything would change. 
not just for the person who receives, but for the person who gives. I'm not saying that everyone is called to sell everything they have and and give the money to the poor, like Jesus told that rich young ruler to do, if you remember that story. That story is descriptive of an event. I don't think that it's prescriptive for everyone. This call from God to only take what we need and use the rest to help others, it's going to look different for different people. It's going to look different for me and for you and for you and for you. But I want to tell you a story about how it looked for one person. Her name's Ann Patchett. For her, it looked like not shopping for 12 months. Back in 2017, Ann wrote an opinion piece for the New York Times called My Year of No Shopping. And in it, she talked about her growing disdain for our materialistic culture and how she decided to spend a year not buying anything she didn't absolutely need. She came up with her kind of her own set of rules, right? She bought grocery items, toiletries, batteries, other consumables, but only after she had completely run out of them. So it wasn't like, hey, I only have six batteries left. I better buy 65 more, right? It was like, I'm out of batteries. I will buy four. This is what I need. At one point, she ran out of lip balm. She talks about how she decided to look for more before she bought some. She looked through her desk drawers and coat pockets. She found five tubes. (laughs) She did the same thing with lotion and soap and hair products, finding enough of them under her sink and in other places to last three years, she said. As Anne reflected on her year without consumption in the article, she said this, I thought was so good. Once I got the hang of giving shopping up, it wasn't much of a trick. The trickier part was living with the startling abundance that had become glaringly obvious when I stopped trying to get more. Once I could see what I already had and what actually mattered, I was left with a feeling that was somewhere between sickened and humbled. When did I amass so many things? And did someone else need them? Not shopping for a year hardly makes me one with the poor. But it has put me on the path of figuring out what I can do to help. If you stop thinking about what you might want, it's a whole lot easier to see what other people don't have. That's a good line. When we stop thinking about what we might want, it's a whole lot easier to see what other people don't have. Anne says, once I was able to get past the want and be honest about the need, it was easier to give more of my money to people who could really use it. Like Anne, if we are able to get past the want and be honest about what we actually require to live, what we really need, it becomes so much easier to use our extra to help people who don't have enough. This is obviously going to help the people who've been hurt by oppressive hoarding practices, but listen to me, it's going to help you too. It's going to help you too. Because listen to what Jesus says right before he tells the story of the rich fool. These words haunt me in the very best way. Jesus said to them, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Why? Because life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. There is no life in wealth and possessions. There is no life in the endless cycle of accumulation and consumption. There is no life in having the nicest car, the latest phone, or storage units filled with stuff. There's no life in it. We all know this. And so why do so many of us spend our entire lives pursuing more and more and more? 
I think it's because if we're not diligent and intentional about how we use our resources, the internal and external pressure of consumption is just going to win out. If we don't make these intentional choices, these choices will be made for us. So here's my final question for us today. Do you want an abundance of possessions or do you want an abundant life? Do you want an abundance of possessions or do you want an abundant life? Because Jesus said very clearly, life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. We cannot pursue an abundance of possessions and experience an abundant life. We cannot serve both God and money. That's the craziest thing about consumerism. It promises an abundant life. But all it delivers is a life marked by scarcity and fear and greed. We feel like we're gaining control the more and more that we get, but we're actually losing it. It's like trying to to grip water as we squeeze tighter and tighter. It just goes through our fingers. Instead of owning our wealth, it ends up owning us. Our possessions end up possessing us. So do you want an abundance of possessions or do you want an abundant life? Do you want a full closet or do you want a full life? Do you want to buy more extra and shove it in a storage unit or do you want to use the extra you already have to honor God and help your neighbor? Because I'm telling you, that's where life is found. That's where life is found. As we come to a close this morning, I want to tell you how the very first church answered those questions that I've been asking. Listen to how the community of the first church is described in Acts. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there was no needy persons among them. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them and brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. How incredible is that? That's how the first church lived. Now listen, this is not a cult, right? It doesn't say that they all sold everything they had. They gave the money to the leaders. They went and bought a big plot of land in the middle of nowhere and built a commune, right? This church was in Jerusalem one of the largest cities in the region, a major urban hub, not all that dissimilar from Austin, Texas. And the members of this first church, they lived and worked in Jerusalem, living very typical first century urban lives in a big city, except for one thing, one thing was really different about them. They had been so changed by the resurrection of Jesus Christ and placing their faith in him that they considered themselves part of an extended family of Jesus' followers. They considered themselves belonging to one another. They had oneness in this church family. This was not a group possessed by their possessions. No one even claimed that any of their stuff was their own. They knew principle number two we talked about last week. Everything we have belongs to God. We are just stewards of it here on earth. So when a need would arise among them, someone who had extra would sell that extra and give the money to the person who needed it. And this didn't stop with the first church in Jerusalem. These principles and practices of generosity, they carried forward. We see it from one of my biblical heroes, a woman named Lydia. She's this wealthy businesswoman who becomes a Christian after hearing a sermon from Paul in Acts 16. 
Lydia understood that following Jesus meant using her extra to further God's kingdom. So you know what Lydia decided to do? She decided to use her extra to fund and lead the very first church in Europe. We see it again. Paul is working with the church in Corinth. Decades later, Paul asked them to financially support Christians and churches in other cities who are struggling. Listen to how he puts it. Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty, your extra, will supply what they need so that in turn, their plenty, their extra, will supply what you need. The goal is equality. That word plenty, it literally means extra or overflow. Paul tells the church in Corinth that their extra can meet the needs of people who don't have enough right now. And then someday, if the need arises and they find themselves in a place of need, someone else's extra can meet their needs. For hundreds of years, this was a central practice for Christian churches. An early church father named St. Basil the Great affirmed this in the 4th century church by saying, The bread in your cupboard belongs to the hungry. The coat unused in your closet belongs to the one who needs it. The shoes rotting in your closet belong to the one who has no shoes. The money which you hoard up belongs to the poor. This is our calling as individual Christians and as the body of Christ. And it's our legacy. Hundreds of years, this is how the church operated. We exist. The church, the body of Christ, we exist to fill the gap between extra and not enough. We exist to fill that gap. As Paul said, the goal is equality. God's desire is that no one takes more than they need so that everyone has enough. Paul completes this exhortation with this powerful reminder. As it is written, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. Do you know where that quote comes from? It's from Exodus, from the story of God giving the Israelites only enough manna for one day at a time. Isn't that amazing? This is the way God has designed the world to work from the very beginning. He gives humanity everything we need to sustain us. We only take what we need, and then we give the extra to anyone who doesn't have enough. This is God's design. It is the legacy of the church. And it is our calling as followers of Jesus today. So let's do it. Let's stop hoarding and consuming because it only hurts us and our neighbors. Let's only take what we need. And then let's give any extra we have to folks who don't have enough. We belong to each other. So let's do this together. Let me pray. God, we thank you for the world you've created. We thank you for the more than enough that exists inside of it. We thank you for this beautiful design that you've made one which you give us everything and we only take what we need. Thank you for the legacy of the early church, which shows us how this design looks in action. God, please keep us from the harmful practices of hoarding and consuming. Remind us that the path of materialism only leads to greed and fear and scarcity that hurts us and hurts our neighbors. God, help us to be honest 
about the extra that we have and then show us what you'd like for us to do with it. Create in us a generous spirit, both as individual followers of Jesus and as a church family here at Restore. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.